Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh, mercy! Five, four, three, two, one. From my parents' basement, it is the Masson All Access Podcast, brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. Round one of the MLB draft is two weeks from today. So we're going to be talking about some of the top guys that could be taken with that number two overall pick held by the Baltimore Orioles. And Emerson Hancock is an exciting 6'4 righty from Georgia. On the podcast, I speak to Scott Strickland, Georgia's head coach, about Hancock. Then later on in the podcast, I'm going to have Pete Mishu to talk about our 20 in 20s, Cedric Mullins and Ryland Bannon. Mishu also offers his thoughts on Ryan Mountcastle and Keegan Aiken, so stick around for that as well. But let's kick things off with Scott Strickland. Well, the MLB draft is just a few weeks away, and a couple names of pitchers that you're going to hear over the next couple weeks. Asa Lacey from Texas A&M, and the other one is Emerson Hancock from Georgia. And we are joined now by Scott Strickland, who is Georgia's head coach. Scott, thanks so much for joining the program. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Paul. So let's talk about Emerson, because he was a Georgia kid and you were able to recruit him to come there. It seems like an advantage to get a guy like that, a very talented six foot four righty. What was the recruiting process like for Emerson Hancock? Well, Emerson was a late bloomer. He was a guy that you know grew up a Georgia fan. He's from South Georgia, a little town called Cairo. That's actually closer to, you know, the Florida state line than he is to, to Athens, Georgia, but he's deep uh, South Georgia kid. That's always loved Georgia. Uh, his brother attended the University of Georgia, and so a place he always wanted to go. He just wasn't quite there when he was a freshman. When he was a sophomore, it was good, but it wasn't great yet. He could pitch, but it was 83, 84 miles an hour. The velocity just hadn't hit yet, but he could really pitch. He had a good changeup and a good breaking ball, and then he kind of bloomed a little bit late, late in his junior year into his, you know, rising senior summer is when kind of Mother Nature hit him on the head. He got a little stronger, and he started throwing 88, started throwing 90. And then late fall, his senior year is when he first started throwing 92, 93, and the scouts really perked up. So he, you know, most of the kids that we're recruiting, we're seeing them when they're sophomores, and they've kind of bloomed, and and we know they're going to be really good. Emerson was that late bloomer that we were fortunate that he was patient. He wanted to come to Georgia. He waited for us. And then we uh, we got him to commit late in his junior year. Gotcha. And his success kind of coincided with your team's success. You had maybe your best season at the helm with Georgia in 2019. You guys won 21 games in the SEC. You had a 42-14 and 14 record. How much of that success in 2019 could you attribute to your starter, Emerson Hancock? Well, when you've got a guy like that that you can just put in on Friday night, it doesn't matter who you're playing, you know, you've got a chance to win. And in our league, you know, I, I think this year we, we may have six or seven first round picks that are pitchers out of our league this year. And that's just how talented this league is. So when you're going against another first rounder on Friday night and you've got a guy like Emerson, you feel really good going into it. So just the confidence that he gave our team, we just knew on Friday night, you know, we need to give him a couple runs and we had a great chance to win. And, and that's what he did for us. 
You mentioned his fastball really ticked up in velocity. From what I've read, scouts really love that fastball. Do you think that fastball currently is his best pitch, and what kind of other stuff does he have in his repertoire? Well, he's a four-pitch pitcher. It's fastball, curveball, slider, change, and, and he has really learned how to elevate that fastball. You know, Pitchers are taught all their lives to keep the ball down. Keep it down, keep it down. Well, he's a guy that has, you know, with this new technology, he's a spin rate guy. This ball spins at a pretty good rate, so he can elevate that fastball. So now it's a two-seam fastball, an elevated fastball. He can throw a four-seam fastball away from his arm side, kind of away to those right-handed hitters. So I think his best pitch is his fastball because there's so many variations on it, but it's polished breaking ball, polished slider, really good changeup. He throws the left-handers. He can get a lot of different kinds of hitters out with the kind of different stuff that he has. And he started out 2020 with just four starts under his belt. You guys jumped out to a uh, a 7-0 record and were second in the country by many rankings. What did you see from him in those four starts? Obviously not a big sample size, but was there enough to see some growth from 2019 to 2020? What kind of stuff did you see from him in that limited sample size? Well, his first three starts, you know, he wasn't Emerson Hancock-like. You know, you get all the, the uh, you know, accolades and everything that goes into the offseason. I, I think he might have been trying a little bit too hard. Uh, he's certainly one of those guys that works really hard, uh, and, and he does everything to get himself prepared for every start. And he might have been just a little bit too jacked up for those first couple of starts, and he was just okay. Uh, but his last start that he had, his fourth start of the season, that was the guy that we all expected to see, and, and it was really, really good. I, I think if we continue to go, if we were playing right now, we'd be getting ready to go into the region. I think that he would be in the running to be the number one pick overall, which I still think he's in that conversation, but I think he would have cemented himself for sure as, uh, as that number one, number two pick. Whoever gets him is going to be very, very fortunate because he can really pitch. He's a great kid. He's got all the intangibles. And, uh, you know, he had a little bit of a slow start, but don't let those numbers fool you. It is just premium stuff. Well, when you're in the conversation for a top three or potential number one overall pick, conversations are also about the personality and the makeup and uh, off the field as well as his success on the field. What kind of kid is Emerson Hancock and a veteran guy on that team headed into the 2020 season? Were you expecting him to be a leader on your team? Yes, I was, and, and uh, he, he takes a lot of pride in the things he does off the field, how he does them. I mean, he, he got a 3.85. He was disappointed. He got an A-minus in a class this past semester. <laughs> he didn't get a 4.0. So he's that kind of kid. He competes at everything he does. He's a yes sir, no sir kind of kid. Uh, he's a pleaser. He wants to do well. Uh, he's very coachable. Uh, you can get on him a little bit from a coach, and he takes it very well. Uh, he, you can challenge him, and he's going to respond. He is as good of a kid as you can actually have off the field. And, and, you know, coaches will say that all the time about players that they really like, but literally every single box is checked with him. Uh, and I, I've said this about a couple players that I've had in the past, and he's certainly in this category, that if your daughter went away to college and she came back home with Emerson Hancock, you would be fist pumping in the air. You'd be so excited <laughs> because he's that kind of kid but he's also the kind of kid that he's really competitive. You put him on the mound, he's going to compete like no one else, but then off the field, he's going to check all the boxes and do everything he needs to do. That's a great way to put it. Uh, In terms of any knocks on him, the really only thing that I've seen is 
Um, some scouts might have been concerned that he wasn't an overly dominant strikeout guy, He, but he still put up almost 10 Ks per nine in the most recent season. Do you think he is a legitimate strikeout pitcher and could be at the next level? Oh, I think so. He's got the slider has gotten better. Uh, it's gotten sharper. He was just a fastball, curveball, changeup guy when he got here. So the slider has progressively gotten better. And like we talked about, elevating that fastball is kind of a new toy for him. So he's going to be able to do that. At the college level, what you saw with guys like him and our number two starter, Cole Wilcox, another really hard thrower, you see a lot of kids swinging at the first pitch. When they get that fastball, they're swinging because they didn't want to get the two strikes. So lots of early contact, uh, lots of kind of soft outs, so to speak. And in the major leagues, you're not going to see that as much. You're going to see guys that are patient and going deeper in counts. When he gets to two strikes, he can wipe you out with that elevated fastball with that slider. Uh, he is going to be a legitimate strikeout guy, but he is a strike thrower. So he might not be the guy that, you know, is getting one and a half strikeouts per inning, but uh, he is going to strike out a whole lot more than he walks, and it's going to be a lot of quality strikes in the strike zone. And you were able to see in the SEC some other guys that might be taken in that top five. If you were talking to a team and trying to make your case for Emerson Hancock to be the number one overall pick, you kind of touched on some of the elements earlier, but what would be your main case for a team to convince them to take him number one overall? Well, when you're taking someone at that point, you don't want to have any questions. And, you know, certainly you mentioned Asa Lacey, and there's a kid at Tennessee, Garrett Crochet, and he's just off the charts talented kids, and they're left-handed too. So, you know, that those are, there are a lot of things to like about those guys. But I can speak personally on Emerson. You've got no worries. He checks every box. I mean, we always worry about intangibles with players and can they handle the spotlight. Can they handle the pressure? I know for a fact that Emerson can do that, and he is the kind of kid that you're going to want on the front of your media guy. You're going to want him on billboards around the town. He is that kid. And, uh, you know, again, those other kids, Lacey and Crochet, they're outstanding. Uh, but I can speak personally for Emerson that I know that if you pick him and he's in your organization, he's going to be the guy that you're going to want to put on a billboard. Well, that's a great way to put that, especially considering this is a difficult time where teams are going with a little bit less information than they might in previous years considering the shutdown. In terms of your work at Georgia, you guys were, as mentioned, off to an outstanding start, ranked number two by many uh, in the country to start 2020. What kind of challenges do you face as you had an outstanding team on the field in 2020, a whole new recruiting class coming in in the fall what kind of challenges are you facing over the coming months? Well, we're still dealing with the unknown. We now know that the draft is going to be five rounds, so we don't know exactly how it's going to affect our team. You know, this, this was a team that we felt like that we were going to have nine, maybe ten guys drafted in the June draft. Now that it's only five rounds, it could only be three or four guys. And uh, you just don't know exactly who's going to get drafted, who's not going to get drafted, what about your high school guys? We've, we've got four or five really high-profile high school guys that, you know what, the, the draft is an issue. Do they go in the top five rounds? Do they sign as free agents? You just don't know. So I think that's probably the biggest thing that I think everyone that's listening, the hardest thing is the unknown. We don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. And I think that's what all of us are just trying to deal with is what's our team going to look like? Do we even practice in the fall? Do we even go to school in the fall? We still don't know that stuff. So, I think that's the biggest you know, hurdle that we've all got to get over is just kind of the fear of the unknown. 
Well, we do know there will be a draft in a couple weeks, and the Orioles could end up with Emerson Hancock with that number two overall pick, or potentially Cole Wilcox, another starter from Georgia, with that number 30 overall pick that they also hold. Scott Strickland, head coach of Georgia, joining us here on Masson All Access. Well, now we bring in Pete Mishu of the Norfolk Tides, who joins us on the Masson All Access podcast via Zoom. Pete, thanks so much for hopping on here. Uh, my pleasure, Paul. Nice to talk a little baseball for the first time in quite a while. Yeah, I mean, it has been quite a long dr- time, and it feels like every day that goes by, we are a little bit further and further away from baseball, but hopefully we get some back in our lives at some point soon. But I want to ask you about two guys that you got some uh, time to watch down in Norfolk, two Orioles minor leaguers. Uh, Cedric Mullins, we'll start with him because you saw him both in 2018 and in 2019, the first time he was on his way up through the Orioles system, and this time he was stumbling a little bit through the Orioles system. What did you see from him? He actually spent more time in Norfolk last year than he did in Bowie or Baltimore. So in that amount of time, he hit just over 200. What did you see from him then? And is there a little bit of hope that he can recoup some of the uh, the high hopes that fans might have had for him uh, in the limited time they saw him in 2018? Well, certainly, I think there still is plenty of time for Cedric. He's only, I believe, 25 years old now. Uh, He was in a situation where you find a lot of young, promising, up-and-coming players that are in organizations that are rebuilding, whereas perhaps somebody in the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Dodgers organization wouldn't get a whiff of the major leagues at that point, but Cedric did because the Orioles had a need and had an opportunity and maybe he went up a little too quickly. You know, you can always look back at that. And, you know, hindsight, as they say, is twenty twenty. Um, but certainly what he did in Norfolk was certainly warranting at least an opportunity for him uh, to get a look in Baltimore. He played exceptionally well uh, with the Orioles in that first stint. And then, of course, last year was a very different story. Uh, struggled all the way around at a lot of different levels. But He's a young man who has a, a lot of natural skill, tremendous speed, as we all know, uh, covers so much ground in the outfield, uh, runs the bases exceptionally well. Uh, the question is, you know, can he hit uh, at the higher levels? Uh, I'm looking at his numbers from last year, and obviously in 66 games in Norfolk, only hit 205, uh, hit under 100 in limited duty with Baltimore, went all the way back down to AA, had a chance to just go play every single day. The one thing that I did notice about Cedric uh, was his temperament and his attitude when he was with Norfolk last year. If he had any feelings of being disgruntled or upset about, A, his personal play, and B, the fact that he wasn't in the major leagues any longer, he certainly hit it if he felt that way at all. I never got any sense from Cedric uh, anything other than uh, you know he was here to work. He was here to do his best. He was here to get better, and he was there to advance and help whatever team he was playing with win. I think that says a lot about him. He had a great attitude, and you know, I'm certainly hoping that that he can get back. Whether it happens or not for him, you know, I don't. Know. Nobody knows for sure. Uh, but you know, he certainly got some tools. The question is, you know, can he get that batting average up, you know, to at least the you know 250, 260 level where his other tools would then you know make him an above average player if he can just be an average hitter and he got some time with the big league camp in spring training of course flashed the glove out in center as he did when he was in Baltimore both in 2019 and 2018 and hit a little bit and of course showed that speed that allowed him to steal 33 bags 
over the course of the 2019 season among those three levels. So given what we saw from him, a little bit of him in spring training, what you saw from him in Norfolk, did you expect to see him uh, to start the year in 2020, assuming this was a normal season? Um, Obviously, we didn't have too much of an idea of where all these guys were going to get sorted, but were you expecting to see him to start the year or kind of start maybe in Bowie, work his way back up to Norfolk, and then hopefully eventually to Baltimore? Yeah, I'm not really sure what the big league's plans were for Cedric uh, to begin this season. Uh, I think if he had not begun the year in Norfolk, we probably would have seen him at some point. Uh, you know, He's a guy that if they have hopes for him uh, to once again be a full-time major leaguer, they just can't sit him down in, in Bowie again for another you know year as he played 51 games there last year. Uh, you know, I look at all these boards that have projected – uh, slots for where guys are set to begin the year. And, and honestly, I never spoke with anybody in Baltimore, uh, anybody within the, the player development realm that had a, you know any inkling as to where he was going to begin. So I'm not even going to venture a guess as to whether he was slated for Bowie or Norfolk. But you know, I think common sense tells us all we would have seen him at Norfolk certainly at some point. Absolutely. Well, another guy that you got a little bit of exposure to in Norfolk would be Ryland Bannon. Played just 20 games in Norfolk on his way up through the Orioles system. Started the year in Bowie, of course, came over in the Manny Machado deal. He can play a little bit of third base, a little bit of shortstop, potentially, a little bit of second base. Um, He played pretty much exclusively at third when he got to Norfolk, and that's pretty much where he's the most comfortable with. But what did you see from him first defensively uh, in the limited sample size that you got from him? I was very impressed with what I saw from him. I don't know if he really has the arm to play third base, but I thought it was an adequate arm. Uh, He fielded the ball very well. I remember in talking with Ryland, he considers himself a third baseman. That's where he likes to play. I think most of the the scouts and people that watch him play get to project him as a second baseman because of the arm strength and his reaction to the baseball at the higher level. But he loves third base. But here's another kid with a very good attitude, just wants to play, uh, sort of an under-the-radar guy, a a doctor draft pick, as you mentioned, came over in that Machado deal, uh, came out of Xavier, which is not regarded – as a baseball school, we all think about Xavier basketball, but certainly don't think about Xavier uh, as a, a baseball producing school and just came into Norfolk and just lit it up. And again, a very small sample size. Uh, so let's not get too excited about it, but certainly raise some eyebrows with what he did in that 20 game stint hitting. I think it was 317 here with the Tides. And he was teammates with Zach Lowther, who was with the Bowie Bay Sox in 2019, when he was with Xavier back in college. So those two guys right. are good buddies. So he had a little bit of a cushion coming into the Orioles system midseason back in 2018. Uh, but beyond defensively, you mentioned he hit 317, got some surprising pop, I think, for a guy who is under six foot in stature. Um, but do you think that he could be an eventual utility player in the big leagues, or do you think maybe at some point down the line, if you got a little bit more exposure in the AAA level and then a call-up, he could be a starter potentially uh, for the Orioles down the future? Yeah, I think it's uh, you know a long, long road for uh, Ryland from this point. As you noted, only 20 games at the AAA level. Uh, you look at his numbers at AA, he hit 255 there last year. Uh, you know, I, I would think long term, the Orioles would hope that perhaps he could be a utility guy, somebody off the bench that could, you know, play some second, some third, uh, be serviceable there, spray the ball around a little bit. 
uh, a little bit of pop. Hopefully, if he could continue to hit for average, you know, he could be one of those utility guys uh, that could, you know, be a nice 24th, 25th kind of guy off the bench. Well, that's certainly exciting considering the Orioles could use a few more position players in their farm system. They're quite deep in terms of pitchers, and you got to see some great pitchers with the Tides last year, including Keegan Aiken, whose numbers aren't eye-popping in terms of his 2019 numbers with the Tides, but considering the average ERA in the International League jumped by more than a run last year, his numbers might be slightly more impressive than they first appear. ERAs were way, way up last year. Last year was the first year that uh, AAA baseball used the major league ball. In contrast, they had used a different baseball. And the ball last year, I mean, you can argue and talk all you want about, you know, is the ball juiced? Is it not juiced? But it is a different baseball. And we saw balls last year in the International League that looked like routine pop-ups that were flying out of the yard. Uh, You know, batters would tell me, you know, off the record, I completely missed that ball and went out of the yard. I would have pitchers. I made a great pitch. The ball sounded awful when the guy hit it. I thought it was not even a deep fly ball, and the thing got out. Now, there are some some very hitter-friendly ballparks uh, in the International League. Now, Norfolk is not one. Norfolk is one of the difficult hitters' uh, ballparks, a great pitcher's ballpark, and we saw balls just launched out of Harbor Park. But then you get down to a place like Charlotte and a place like Durham, which has always been a hitter's haven, and they were hitting even more home runs. So, uh, again, talking to pitching coaches and managers as well, uh, they said the baseball was just so dramatically different, and it had had an incredible impact on offenses around the league when you saw uh, ERA skyrocketing, which I think makes what Keegan Aiken did last year all the more impressive. Uh, He was an all-star, had a wonderful year with the Tides, uh, and pitching in that kind of an environment with pitchers trying to adjust uh, at that level with the baseball, with what it was doing, uh, you know, uh, speaks volumes about, you know, what he hopefully can do. And, you know, you certainly mentioned the fact that the Orioles have a lot of good pitching coming up. Uh, I think he's won. Whether he can take that next step uh, remains to be seen. But, you know, he certainly looks like he has all the tools, and I think he can do it. And the tides were set to – Probably start the year with some of the better pitching prospects in the entire Orioles system. Two exciting guys, I think, of coming from Bowie and Zach Lowther and Alexander Wells and maybe a Michael Bauman on the way. This has been such a strange time for everybody. What kind of things are you missing that you would be getting during the baseball season at this point? If we were getting Norfolk Tides baseball, what are some of the aspects of the game that you're missing right now that you wish we could have? Well, you certainly mentioned the pitching. Uh, you mentioned, Zach, uh, the fact that he came out of Xavier uh, with Ryland Bandit. If I remember Ryland telling me, they were roommates, in fact, when yeah. they played college baseball. So, you know, Ryland was just raving about Zach anytime I would ask him about him. And he just said, just wait, watch what this kid can do. Uh, you know, you're all going to be very, very, I wouldn't say surprised because expectations are high, but certainly impressed uh, with what Zach can bring to the table. Uh, but I think I think all of us in Norfolk uh, were most especially anticipating what you referred to, the young pitching. You know, we've been seeing it here the last couple of years make its way through Frederick and Bowie, and we thought this was going to be the year that we were going to see a lot of those guys 
come and join the Tides. If you add some of those names to Keegan Aiken, if Keegan didn't make the big league club, if he opened up back in Norfolk, he'd probably be the ace of the staff to begin the year. And I think the pitching staff was just going to be tremendous, um, which would have been a lot of fun because there hasn't been a lot of high-level pitching in the Orioles system, as you know, for several years. It has taken time, and I certainly applaud the Orioles for the way that they've done it. You know, draft these young kids. Don't push them and rush them too soon. Let them get their feet wet and find their footing, you know, step by step along the way, all the way from, you know, Aberdeen up through Norfolk and then eventually, hopefully, on to the major league. So uh, the pitching, I, I think, you know, from a baseball standpoint, is what we were all really excited to see. And then, you know, you sprinkle in a few of those offensive guys, uh, you know, no uh, wishing no ill will on Ryan Mountcastle. But I was kind of hoping, you know, let's let's hold him off for a little longer before you push him up to Baltimore. I know he's going to be there eventually and, and be a very good major league player, but wouldn't mind seeing the IL MVP back for at least a, a portion of another year here in Norfolk. Well, I wasn't planning on talking about Ryan Mountcastle, but I got to ask now that you bring him up. Everybody has different opinions as to where he could play in the major leagues. From what you saw of him last year, International League MVP, an outstanding offensive season used all over the diamond in 2019. But where do you think his best defensive position is in the long term? Well, that's the $64,000 question, (laughs) Paul. You know, where can he play defensively? Uh, you know, certainly the fact that he was the league MVP was based on his offense and the numbers that he put up in terms of batting average, RBIs, home runs. Uh, his He began as a third baseman, of course. Uh, I guess you would have to talk to somebody higher up in the Orioles organization as to why, you know, they moved him out of that position as quickly as they did. Um, I, I thought he did a very nice, solid job at first base. Uh, of course, that's a position uh, that, you know, for the time being is filled. So what do you do with them? Uh, then they moved him into left field last year. Uh, it's a position that he had not played before. Uh, there was a, a very steep learning curve for Ryan trying to learn that position. Uh, I thought he did an adequate job in left field, but again, learning a new position, especially at a higher level um, is something that, you know, anybody would be hard pressed to do at a high level in just uh, you know, what a quarter of a year, a third of a year, which is what Ryan was trying to do last year with the Tide. So, you know, that question still looms very much over his head. You know, where can you play him defensively? Uh, Certainly you can, you know, spot him at first base every now and then, you know, give somebody a day off, that's fine. But other than that, you know, do they feel comfortable, you know, putting him in a major league outfield right now? Now that's That's a really big question mark. Well, whether or not Ryan Mountcastle started the year with the Tides or not, that roster was going to be absolutely brimming with young and exciting talent. And at this point, we're all wishing that we can get baseball back as soon as possible. But Pete, how are you spending your time without baseball during this, uh, during this hiatus? Well, missing baseball, like a lot of people, uh, it's funny. Almost every day I'll look at our schedule, which I have up on the refrigerator and I'll say to myself, you know, I should have been, in Charlotte today, or I should be on a bus to Pawtucket, or I should be getting ready for a, a day game at home against Gwinnett today. So, you know, baseball is a unique sport in that there are so many games and the schedule can be so grinding, even on those of us you know, that love watching the game for the players, playing the game, being around the game, whether as a staff member uh, at the ballpark, a game day employee, whatever the case may be. And there are those times when you say, you know, I just need a break. I got to get away from it. Just one day off 
you know, every three weeks to a month, which is what we average in the minor leagues. The minor leagues average even less days off than the major leagues. Now, I know that the season is longer at the major league level, but in terms of, you know, the major leagues get what a day off every, you know, 10 days to two weeks on average. In the International League, it's a day off every three to three and a half weeks. So it's even a more grinding schedule for at least the five months of the IL season. Um, but when you're not doing it, you, you think, boy, I'd just like to be at the ballpark, want to be around, you know, to hear uh, that rustling of feet when they open the gates and people start coming in and to hear the uh, uh, the sound of the ball hitting glove as players are out warming up, getting ready to, to smell the hot pretzel uh, coming up for the concourse while I'm sitting in the broadcast booth, you know, doing pregame notes. So, you know, all those little things that you get used to on a daily basis. And sometimes you don't even think about, you know, when they're not there and we haven't seen them now for at least at the international league level, you know, since Labor Day last year. Uh, and to think that, you know, we might possibly not be seeing and hearing and, and enjoying those things maybe until next April. You know, that's a that's a depressing thought. It, it certainly is. And I, I hate to end it on that as well. But I guess any kind of silver lining from this would be that uh, maybe when it comes back, we appreciate it just a little bit more because it will be back in our lives. And all the stuff that you mentioned that we took for granted, likely at, at some point over the course of previous seasons, uh, we won't anymore, given uh, given how this whole thing has gone. So, Pete, thanks so much for for joining us, discussing some of the top prospects in the Orioles system. Hopefully we get baseball back at some point soon and we get to see some of these guys like a Cedric Mullins, a Ryan Mountcastle, a Ryland Bannon come up to Baltimore at some point soon. So thanks for hopping on the podcast. Hey, Paul, appreciate the invitation. My pleasure. We'll do it uh, anytime you want. Thanks. That's all we got for the Mass and All Access podcast today. Thanks to Scott Strickland and Pete Michoud for joining the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Hannah Broder, Bobby Blanco, Amy Jennings, and Ryan Engelmeyer behind the scenes. Stay home, stay healthy, stay safe. There's only one way we're getting through this, and that is together. The Mass and All Access podcast is brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. I'm Paul Mancano. We'll see you later.